For 12 weeks, my director yelled at me, and I yelled back at him. We're exactly alike. Miriam Hopkins Chapter 5 At least someone was providing a map through the divorce. Even though Polly had never married, she had an advanced degree in such matters. And so, I found myself back in school, the expensive one, following a course of study that would actually inform my future, the USC School of Cinema and Television. Sitting in a darkened classroom, I discovered my favorite film opened like this. A close-up on stenciled letters, spelling out Sunset Boulevard on a leaf-strewn curb. Head credits scroll on asphalt as the camera rolls down the street. Tilting up, we capture a wide boulevard lined with trees. Hills rise in the distance. In the half-tones of dawn, glaring motorcycle headlights crest the pavement. Police cars race by in an affluent neighborhood and make a turn down a private drive to an old estate. The police pull up and come to a stop at the stone-flanked entrance of a mansion. Some men in uniform run up the front steps, most split to the left and move with urgency through the garden to the side of a pool, followed by photographers toting cameras with huge flash attachments. A man in a suit is sprawled face down in the water. His arms are splayed. His legs hang lifelessly from his hips. Looking up from the depths of the pool, picture the corpse, a young man, striped tie pulled askew, mouth lolling open, eyes staring. The police and photographers crouch and lean over the water to get a better view. A sardonic narrator who has been commenting throughout ends the scene with a disembodied. The poor dope? He always wanted a pool. Well, in the end, he got himself a pool. Only the price turned out to be a little high. On hearing this, I let out a guttural laugh. It wouldn't be the first time I identified with a fantasy. A dark one, but a fantasy nonetheless. The dissolution of marriage, though far from final, was not falling my way. I no longer had a pool. When Jake wanted to swim, he had to go to his father's. The house near Coldwater Canyon Park had been sold, and the court was holding the proceeds in escrow. I was living in a duplex on Doheny, walking distance to Kate Mantellini's, a restaurant with the dubious distinction of revitalizing the meatloaf. My BMW had been downgraded to a Renault. Does anyone remember Le Car? Polly advised forbearance. The longer the case went on, the better my chance of prevailing. After all, hadn't the judge ordained that Dave pay my tuition? As Polly devised a long-range strategy, I found myself alienated, I would say, from my Hollywood friends. The wives of were spooked by my plummeting status. With the exception of Patsy Morris, they stopped returning my calls. Well, and some people came through. Darla and Jane Dryden upped the ante, precipitating the return of Natalie Brown. Over months of weekends and an excessive amount of Chardonnay, my friends rallied. We discussed Darla's path from writer's assistant on a sitcom to showrunner before the age of 30 and her abysmal lack of male companionship. 
Jane, on the other hand, had just dumped her third fiancé. For being so absent-minded, he let their groceries rot, raising a mysterious two-week stench in the trunk of the car. Polly recommended a cleaning crew that specialized in sanitizing crime scenes, and Jane demanded her keys back. One such evening, I, lapped by the nostalgia wine can bring, said, You know how I miss? I miss Natalie. Remember her? She told me not to marry that. Jane, topping my glass, paused for the words to come. But what issued forth in an incantation almost inhuman and surprising to my own ears was that fucking old bastard, peso de merda, mi melodrano, melodicio la sua putana, dalla mi labra all'orecchio di Dio. Jesus, said Polly. What the hell was that? asked Jane. Darla looked around the room, under the throw pillows at her elbow, glanced over her shoulder, and then insisted, English, please, or should I be burning sage? Oh, it's just something I've heard people say, I demurred. Christ Almighty, what people? asked Darla. People with pitchforks and pointy tails? I don't know. I shook my head. Something unpleasant sloshed back against my throat. I groaned thinking I was lucky that Dave had Jake through Sunday. My hangover was going to bite. Janie, said Polly, you still see Natalie, don't you? Jane, after a couple of years working at the Leo Burnett Agency in Chicago, had a change of heart over shilling stuff people didn't need at prices they couldn't afford, and was currently studying urban planning at UCLA. She had bumped into Natalie, now an associate professor, on campus, and they had kept in touch. Sure, you know, I'll call her. Next time I'll call her, Jane assured. And then she got up and went to my kitchen and retrieved a bottle of vitamin B and several glasses of water. Sunday morning, the persistent ringing of a doorbell awakened me. Natalie stood on the doorstep. The only thing that had changed about her was the color of her glasses. This year... They were malachite green. She took in my swollen, squinted eyes and extreme bedhead, exacerbated by yesterday's hair gel. Hey, Nolly said without preamble. Why don't you hop in the shower and we'll go out to breakfast? I attempted a dry, gummy reply. Nah, it's nothing fancy. Just a breakfast joint around the corner. Really, it's been there forever. Get clean. We'll go. And with that, Natalie planted herself on my shabby chic couch. Twenty minutes later, in a relic of a coffee shop on a powder blue vinyl banquette, Natalie launched right back into our relationship as if there hadn't been a ten-year gap. Like most people of semi-gruff demeanor, she was extremely sensitive. And the similarities in the age gap between Bob Brown, her father, and Jill Shays, her little sister's mother, were too close to mine and Dave Taylor's for comfort. Still, she felt guilty she'd been gone so long. Natalie dumped a saucer of salsa on her scrambled eggs and said, You know, everybody does something egregiously stupid when they're young. Probably they engage in a series of egregiously stupid episodes. It's how you learn. Stupid to savvy. Only now, here, because you're married to a movie star, you do it in public with a clamoring audience. 
My head throbbed, and I wondered why I had missed Natalie's company so much. Perhaps because I was egregiously stupid? Natalie's advice was always meted out in historical anecdotes. Never a simple, you fucked up, and here's how you fix it. But always with a task of deciphering the message. Natalie began her tale. You know Pete Fitzgerald? A black and white image of a rock-hewn masculine icon standing on the prow of a ship, sword in hand, immediately came to mind. Isn't he dead? Sure, he's dead, but he was huge. As big a movie career as ever there was. Okay, I said, reaching for my coffee cup. What you probably don't know is that when he was 18, after he was kicked out of Pasadena Junior College, I wasn't kicked out of Harvard. Right, okay. After Pete Fitzgerald was kicked out of college, he worked as a male model. That was probably back in around 1930. Anyway, as you know, he was kind of hot. He caught on with, we'll just say everybody. For a while, he was a paid companion, a gigolo. Ladies and gentlemen, you catch my drift? I nodded. I wondered how Natalie seemed to have access to information I'd never heard of, and then I remembered Natalie's father ran a movie studio. For the moment, I glossed over the inference that I was being compared to a teenage gigolo. Then, one night, he gets a gig in downtown L.A. Like an appearance, there's a big party. They called it the Sybarites Ball, and it's down at the Biltmore, and most of the attendees are men. It's a white tie and tails event, and Pete Fitzgerald is there. Only he's not wearing anything except some strategically placed fruit. Because he's being carried through the tuxedoed crowd on a silver platter in nothing but his beautiful, broad-shouldered birthday suit. And somewhere in that crowd, someone realized he had star quality. Everyone says his first movie catapulted him to fame. But really, it was that night, the night he was served on a platter. Really? I inquired. I was remembering a stellar film career, only interrupted by a stint as a bomber pilot in World War II. Really? Really, Natalie said. Back then, the studios had legions of talent scouts. And once they make their picks, or made their picks, say, at the Sybarites Ball, Press agents constructed cover stories so thick, no trace of scandal ever permeated. Natalie peered at me expectantly. I was drawing a blank. I wished Polly was there to translate. Now it's called controlling the spin. Oh, I thought you were trying to tell me in a nice way that teenagers are idiots and that I was, or maybe still am, an idiot. I frowned. And maybe I'm about to get served on a platter. Shit. Everybody's an idiot sometime. I'm just suggesting that if you want to come out on top in this situation, in the divorce, in the divorce, if you want to come out on top, you have to learn how to control the spin. I exhaled. Apparently, I don't know how to control anything. Look, toots, this isn't a pity party. 
take in the overall picture and then seize your options. There's always a way. You just need to find it. Two weeks later, after dropping Jake off at a preschool, the stipulation of which had eaten up 40 billable hours in attorney's fees, from which my son would be collected by one of Dave's wenches, well, a thousand pardons, collected by one of his personal assistants, I sat from morning to early evening in an editing bay at USC, putting together a three-minute 16-millimeter film. The room was wide open with a wall of north-facing windows. The space was arranged with five 20-foot-long tables with four editing stations per table. Along the south wall were windowless cubicles that each held a projector and a small screen on a tripod to review works in progress. I liked the regimented room. I liked working with my hands. I liked the process. Putting on the thin, white, disposable cotton gloves so my fingers wouldn't mark the footage. Breaking down the raw film reels on a bell and howl splicer and hanging it on neat strips on a rack over a bin at my workstation. I liked running the strips back and forth on the illuminated bed until I found where to trim and where to splice. I liked the physicality of it, the finality of it, positioning the film sprockets down exactly on the pins, swiping the blade across the film, sanding down the edges of the cut, applying the glue, dropping the plate to make the weld. It was repetitive, detailed, and from bits and pieces of celluloid, I could make a very cohesive narrative. Most of my classes were theoretical, and I found them very irritating. There were just so many auteur theory movies any human being could reasonably stomach. Long lectures on said theory, or even the mention of André Bazin, set my teeth on edge. Yet editing, structuring, this I felt was the real deal. Three minutes of film, it was short, but it was whole. It made sense, and I was in control. Control. I really liked being in control. Suddenly I felt flushed. For some reason, I remembered the first time I had sex with my boyfriend freshman year back in Cambridge, and then afterwards hanging out in somebody else's room, crowded with eight of our friends, listening to The Clash, feeling fundamentally changed. I remembered looking around the room in 1979, wondering, wondering if anybody else noticed the difference. And for some reason, I did the same now, in 1990. I scanned the editing room to see if there was a physical tell for an epiphany moment. Two young men in their early 20s were hunched down in a darkened cubicle, stubble across their chins, staring at the projection screen. The only thing on their horizon was their unfolding masterpiece. Now, it must have been around 5 o'clock. The editing room was nearly silent. The population of campus was thinning out in anticipation of altered states and misadventures. At a maternal 29, I felt those days had departed, but something key had suddenly taken their place. I liked control, and I liked the inkling of muscularity, the real labor it took to make even the smallest film. 
I wanted to know more, to explore my notion. Movies had a glossy exterior, just like I did. But unlike me, they were complicated and considered. Movies were art, married to commerce, married to an enormous amount of sweat. Call it an epiphany. Call it a benediction. Call it a curse. For me, it was a, no, it was the turning point. My gaze settled on the table in front of me. There, twisted around in his seat, sat the only other denizen of the editing room. He had the cheerful aspect of a handsome parakeet, bright round eyes and a beaky high-bridged nose. His jeans were an acid-dyed teal, his top a tropical yellow. Apparently, there is a physical tell for an epiphany moment. Parakeet face was looking at me inquisitively. He broke into a grin and laughed. I laughed. He said, Hey, how's it going? I'm Shep. Hey, Shep, I said. I'm Billy, and things are going surprisingly well. I can see that, said Shep with a nice soft rumble to his voice. I admired Shep's insight. What's Shep's short for? Shepherd Carlyle? That's a beautiful name. No, it's not, not really, but I thank you. I was buoyed up on a cloud of endorphins. And your accent, where are you from? Georgia, Athens, Georgia. I thought Shepherd Carlyle's manifestation in front of me with the endearing bird face and the sweet voice was providential, like the appearance of an oracle predicting better times. We ended up, as the moon rose above downtown, planted in the editing bay, peering at a moviola where Sunset Boulevard flickered in tiny glory, surrounded by cups of coffee from a handy fending machine. We talked, we ran the film back and forth, examined the edits, and found as we became more and more caffeinated that we had so much in common. Our favorite contemporary director was Peter Weir. We loved Ritz crackers spread with cream cheese and jalapeno pepper jelly and the Museum of Natural History. We both agreed excitedly that Enya's album, Watermark, was music to commit suicide by. I admitted to a fondness for the Ventures, proponents of surf rock. Shep spoke lyrically of Fender guitars and the enduring influence of Dick Dale, who I had never heard of, and then he ended up inviting me back to his apartment to listen to the LPs of a legendary surf guitarist playing his Stratocaster. Shepard's apartment was in an old building off of Melrose in Hollywood, not far from Paramount Pictures. By street lamp, the exterior was illuminated and revealed as dilapidated stucco dating back to the teens. In the center of a dying lawn, an untrimmed, short, immensely fat palm tree sat in sharp silhouette. But the interior, Shep's apartment specifically, was sparkling clean and artfully furnished. I thought it was an unusual habitat for a man in his early 20s and said so. Shepard Carlyle said, I like things neat. In my experience, if a person is disinclined to remove their shoes because of the mess, they'll even be less inclined to remove their panties. There was no ambiguity there. He said, panties. I wondered if he hadn't meant briefs, 
shorts, skivvies, harnesses, boxers, jockeys, BVDs, or tidy whities After listening to the go-go-lucky beat of the 1960s on a pile of albums and the consumption of a half of a cold pizza of indeterminate age, Shep took me to a bar on Santa Monica Boulevard. The bar's facade was graced by a retro neon sign and had portholes instead of windows facing the street. Inside, patrons and bartenders greeted Shep with affection. He introduced me as his new best friend, shouting over the music and hugging men and women alike in greeting. We ended up in the middle of a dancing mass. I felt like a pulsating amoeba of bonhomie had absorbed me, joyful and growing. I hadn't felt this happy sense of place since, since before Dave. And then, shuffling and swaying and hopping, eyes glistening, sweat running down our rib cages, Shep yelled in the general direction of my ear, Hey, there's someone here I want you to meet. He took me by the hand and led me from the dance floor to the bar to meet a man, in 90s lingo that was known as a young Turk. Historically, Young Turk refers to a group of progressives in the 1900s that brought democracy, votes for women, and ethnic cleansing to the Ottoman Empire. A mixed bag, to be sure. However, Hollywood's not so big on history. So in the parlance of the day, it meant anybody who, driven by ambition, achieved power. Cooper Daniels, who had arrived in Hollywood from a Midwest university, thinking he would start a career as a photojournalist, capturing life's nitty-gritty and stills, did just that until he was quickly seduced by the flicker's smoke and mirrors. He had gone from the Los Angeles Times to Grip, which is somebody who laid dolly track and assisted in moving the camera around for about $45,000 a year, to handing off a high-concept screenplay to an influential director and parlayed that into becoming a director himself in the range of $3 million a year. He was tall, thin, pale, almost to the point of subterranean white, with a shock of brown hair. He had high contrast coloring, striking, intense, dressed completely in black, and he was seemingly absorbed by bouncing a wine cork without bobble on the bar while he held court good, clean, bounce, then grab, then bounce. He greeted Shep with a firm handshake and carelessly bestowed a quick peck to my cheek, murmuring, nice to see you again. I was fairly certain we'd never met. That said, I also understood in the traditions of Hollywood, it was considered impolite and impractical not to acknowledge a stranger's status. After all, one never knew who would emerge next on top of the heap. Cooper, fresh from the journey from photojournalist to grip to director, understood this form of tact better than most. Hey there, you said you were looking for somebody who got it? Well, Billy here, she's married to. He leaned in to confide in lower tone. Dave Taylor, and now she's at USC. This is the first time I've seen her outside the editing room. He failed to mention that I was actually preparing to divorce Dave Taylor, or that we just met, or that I had a five-year-old child. You said you were looking for an assistant. 
Well, you're looking right at her. She gets it. Shep propelled me forward. Cooper, pocketing his cork in his black jacket, slid off the bar stool and standing directly in front of me, took both my hands in his and said, Great! I had the strong sense, for once in my life, that this was a served-on-a-platter moment, and I decided to roll with it. With uncharacteristic cheek, I channeled my girlfriends. I've had ten years as a fuck buddy and personal assistant to a famous man, and you can have it. Cooper Daniels freed my hands. Fearing I'd been too strident, I looked over my shoulder to Shep. He nodded. I turned back to Cooper. If, on the other hand, you're talking a paid position with my name in the credits, like assistant to Cooper Daniels, I'm your gal. Then you're my gal. Cooper Daniels took his wallet from his trouser pocket and handed me his card. Call me at the office after 10. He glanced at his wristwatch. It was quarter until two. Make it after 11. You won't get much pay, but I'll learn a lot. Indeed, Mrs. Taylor. He gave me a quizzical look, then broke into a bemused grin. It's my first time in the director's chair. Get ready for a crash course. For a moment, I thought of Gabrielle Taylor and her disposable studio desk job. I felt another expanding cognitive shift. That's great. I want to be on set. And after that, who knows? In later years, I couldn't remember if I had said that out loud or just thought it. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.